Good afternoon and welcome to One Hour at a Time. Recovery begins with education and host Mary Woods is here to educate individuals and families and provide support through the recovery process. Now here's your host, Mary Woods. Good afternoon everyone and welcome to One Hour at a Time. I hope you're all having a great day. Um, This afternoon we're going to talk about uh, military families. I think it's been a while since we really focused on on our um, co, I guess, I don't want to say co-workers, but they're certainly the people that um, paid the dearest price for our freedom. And, you know, we certainly know a lot about the returning vets and what it's like for them. And I don't know that we know as much about what it's like to be a family whose family member is in the military. I think um, there's a lot of emphasis on military families than there should be. And I think these individuals, these um, spouses and, and children pay a really significant price for our freedom, and I don't think we understand that well enough. So um, today we're going to talk about um, being in a military family with our our guest today is uh, Mary Lou Darst, who has um, traveled the world with her military family. She has a BA in literature and an MS in multicultural studies. And she has written a book called War Ready in My Father's Shadow. Welcome to our show today, Mary Lou. Thank you very much, Mary. I'm happy to, to be here with you, and thank you for the opportunity. Well, you're welcome. I really don't think most of us understand the price that families pay when the mom or dad is in the military. I think we just take a lot for granted. Well, that's a very good statement. You're making tears come in my eyes because um, I think that's true. And um, I did write the book so that my grandchildren would know my stories about how I grew up. But, but also I decided to publish because I thought that John Q. Public should know um, what it's like for military families, you know. They, I think military families serve too <laughs> in lots of ways. And so that was uh, one of my underlying purposes in publishing the book. Um, could you share with us what your, you know, your dad was in the military? What was, what, what was he like? Well, uh, I can give a little background. He um, joined the uh, Army Air Corps in 1940 and uh, went to England, uh, Scotland, and Wales in World War II um, as a 22-year-old, and uh, he kept a diary while he was in in England and in uh, Wales and Scotland, and I reread his diary um, while I was writing the book and used a lot of quotes from it, Um, but to to answer your question... um, he was not easy to live with. He was a warrior and a soldier, more, first of all. And he expected everyone around him to be the same way. And so um, it was not easy to, to, you know, to live with a soldier and a warrior 24-7. And um, I don't know if that answers your question. but Yeah, I guess um, for... Uh, our listeners who don't understand what that is, what what do you mean when you say your dad was a warrior? Well, how would you describe that? He thought in terms of always being on the battlefield. I mean, at home, everything had to be just 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 perfect, and um, 
Well, let's see. It's, that's not a, that's not a good answer to your question. It was perfect because he was a perfectionist and, and an officer. Um, but um, he would tell you to do something. It was an order. It was never a request. It was an order, and it was to be done. There was no back talk. There was no right or wrong. It was he gave you an order, and you did to do it and follow through, and immediately, you know, so that 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 sort of thing, you know, that's how he saw the world. And and yeah. as an adult looking back, I can understand that now. Uh, you know, I read his diary, and as I said, I put quotes in the book, and um, I I guess I can understand maybe some of the pain that he might have felt and was never able to talk about. Uh, my brother and I both strongly feel that our father had post-traumatic stress syndrome. And um, a lot of men in World War II uh, probably experienced the same thing, but that wasn't brought to light uh, here in the States uh, in the general public until Vietnam veterans started coming back, and then it was diagnosed as a, as a disorder. And your father also served in Korea, didn't he? Yes, he did. We didn't know about that until after he died. Um, he never talked about his the war, ever. He never talked about his work. We did not know what he did when he left for work in the morning. He wore a uniform and he worked in an office and often had a driver pick him up and take him to work and bring him home. But other than that, we did not know, and we were not to ask. It's none of our business. And so um, no one in our family told us that, you know, my mother never said he was going to Korea. And I was, we were just quite shocked when we opened that dresser drawer after my mother's death and we went to, you know, clean the house out and give things away. And we opened that dresser drawer and there were medals and certificates from the Korean War. We were just shocked. So... Um, like I said, I don't think that men from World War II uh, talked about their experiences in war. You know, those things were just not discussed. No, I have uh, friends that grew up in the military, and whenever anybody asks them, where are you from, they say, I'm from nowhere mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. and everywhere. Mm-hmm. Uh, <laughs> that's, that's a good statement. <laughs> Hang your hat in a lot of places. A lot of places become home. We um, moved every. I'm sorry. Well, go ahead, go ahead, darling. You're feeling like you're from everywhere, but you're not really from anywhere. That's right. That's right. Yeah. We moved every 18 months. We were, you know, my father was transferred every 18 months, and we lived in Munich, Germany, two years and nine months. Um, that was longer than we had ever lived any place, and. Um, Oh, and then when we left uh, Germany, um, he retired from the service six months later. So, so how long totally was your dad in the service? Twenty years. Twenty years. Mm-hmm. And having grown children yourself, um, what was your relationship like with him as a young girl? I, w- I would imagine it was different than what your brother's relationship was like. It was a, a distant relationship. Um, he, I didn't know him, and we had missed the, the bonding period. You know, of, 
I didn't see my father until I was a little bit older than two when he came back from the war. And um, so we were like strangers living in the same house for a lot of, lot of my life. And, um, well, for my brother, too, for a while, but I think it was easier for him to relate to my brother, I guess, than it was to me. Um, he was very hard on my brother, though. <laughs> um, but that's, I think, one of the things that people may not not realize, you know, in John Q. public life, that um, there are these vast oceans of distance that are <laughs> set between parent and child sometimes when the parent goes off and they, they're not there when the children are, are young. I'm rambling, excuse me, go ahead. <laughs> no, 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 that's fine. I, I think about like today and you see families, military families, you know, they have Skype and they're, you know, right, the dad right. reading somebody's uh, a bedtime story while he's, you know, stationed abroad or on an aircraft right. carrier or a ship somewhere. And Oh, it's so wonderful. Do you think, that's, that's, that's do you think just, that makes a difference? Oh, I, I think it's wonderful to be in contact that way, to see and to talk person to person. It, it's so personable. Um, my, my mother was a great letter writer, and uh, my father, too. They wrote letters back and forth. But, uh, you know, I did say in the book that um, when we joined my father or he met us again, he had changed, but we had changed. You know, we had grown up and changed a lot. So and my mother said once, well, it's just like strangers living under the same roof, you know. And um, so there was there was always some adjustment period there. Um it's one of the opportunities of being um, a military family is you got to live in a lot of very interesting places at really? a very interesting time. Really? Uh, you, were in J- you were in Japan yeah. like within seven years of us um, right. ending the war. What was that like? Was it very, was it, was it still a lot of devastation or? Um, we did not, we did not see devastation where we, we lived in Nara near which is near uh, Kyoto um, and Otsu, we did not see devastation where we lived and went to school where my father worked. Um, We did go, he did take us to Hiroshima, and we had a horrible experience there, and I will not talk about it. You can read it in the book. Um, But living in Japan was, um, in order for you to understand, I have to kind of, tell you a little bit about the way we lived before we went there, and then you can understand better what I'm talking about. We were living in Houston with my grandparents. Um, I have lots of cousins and uh, the people at the table, dinner table, almost every night. We ran around in the summer in shorts and flip-flops, went barefooted and had went swimming at the local pool and had Kool-Aid and um, what, just lots of lots of family life, lots of fun times. We went to school, of course. Okay, we moved to Japan. We lived in an in Nara in an old two story Japanese house near downtown Nara. And um, Mr. and Mrs. Kimoto, who owned the house, uh, lived in a very small, newer. Japanese house on the same property. It was quite a large property surrounded by a concrete wall. 
And um, then can we? Yes, yes. we're going to um, yes, go ahead, break go ahead. for commercial, and then we'll pick up uh, after our commercial. We'll be right back. All right, honey. Thank you. You're listening to Voice America Health and Wellness. There are a number of health and social services available to individuals for low cost or no cost. Now there's a radio program devoted to bringing you the information you need. Tune in to Outreach Today with host Melissa Jenkins-Simon. Our program promotes the benefits and services of CI Incorporated, providing health and social services over a wide spectrum of resources and agencies. We want to help you. Tune in to Outreach Today, Wednesdays at 10 a.m. Pacific Time, 1 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. Westbridge Community Services. Westbridge is a nonprofit organization dedicated to supporting the recovery of families and individuals who experience co-occurring mental illness and substance use disorders. Westbridge provides integrated dual diagnosis treatment for adult men and women using evidence-based practices. Visit our site today at westbridge.org and discover that doing what works in helping individuals and families gain recovery from dual disorders is important to the staff at Westbridge Community Services. Westbridge utilizes current evidence-based practices, consensus practices, and old-fashioned common sense to provide treatment to individuals and families that experience co-occurring mental illness and substance use disorders. That's westbridge.org, family-centered recovery for co-occurring mental illness and substance abuse disorders. A fresh look at today's health. Voice America Health and Wellness. You're listening to One Hour at a Time with host Mary Woods. If you have a question for Mary or her guests, call now. The listener lines are open. The toll-free number is 1-866-472-5792. That number again is 1-866-472-5792. Now, let's get back to Mary and One Hour at a Time. Welcome back to One Hour at a Time. Um, today our topic is uh, military families, and um, I guess for the lack of better words, that uh, they pay to support our freedom. Um, we're talking with Mary Lou Darst, whose father was a veteran of both World War II and Korea, and she's sharing with us what it was like um, to grow up in a military family. And for Mary Lou, she certainly grew up in a time this post-World War II, she got to live in a number of places that um, were significantly historical. And she, before we went to break, Mary Lou, you were t- talking to us about um, living in Japan. And uh, okay. we had to take a break right in the middle of your story. So please continue. Oh, that's fine. Thank you so much. Um, I was t- 10 years old uh, when we arrived in Japan, and my brother was just about five or six Um and the first thing we noticed was that you know, Japanese people do not show emotion the way the way we did. Every time I see my cousins, even still, we hug and kiss. It, people don't do that in Japan. And so there, there was a feeling of isolation kind of right there, in addition to not, not hearing English. Uh, I missed that a lot. I did learn to speak... Uh, a lot of Japanese, and my parents depended on me to translate. Uh, we had a wonderful Japanese tutor at school. And um, I was talking about living in the old two-story house in, near downtown Nara. Um, and Mama-san, who lived with Mr. and Mrs. Kimoto, was actually Mr. Kimoto's mother. They owned the house we lived in. would see my brother and I playing in the garden, and on Saturday morning... 
she would stand at the glass sliding door to her room and smile at me, and that was my signal to come over and have tea with her. And um, that was the closest thing experience I had to being with a grandmother while I was there. And I loved her. I loved her so much. I miss my grandmother more than I could ever say, but um, she was so good to me. Uh, she didn't speak a word of English, and, and I took a long time learning Japanese words, but she taught me to sit properly on uh, my legs on the tatami mat and to properly drink green Japanese tea and eat one vanilla wafer like a bird so that people couldn't see me chewing, my, my mouth moving. And then um, she, her, her son asked my father if she could take me shopping, and uh, he said yes and gave us money, but gave us bus money. Well, um, I was always the only Caucasian, and staring is very polite in Japan, but I always had the sense that, you know, people stare at you a lot. It makes me very nervous. <laughs> I'm doing something wrong or I'm out of place, but I wasn't. I was just going along with Mama-san. And um, you were right when you said, you know, what, what was, how did people regard us? Well, um, often people looked right through me when I was going to school or waiting for the bus. It's like I wasn't even there. And sometimes people would smile at me. Uh, but most of the time it was like, I was invisible to my environment. And um, that was painful at 10. Uh, so there was some adjustment time there. We loved the old two-story house. There was so much to explore. Uh, my father made us all sleep on the first floor because um, of the, the threat of fire. And um, so... And we had a, a, a lovely, a wonderful young girl was a maid, and she was like part of our family. And uh, she came every day and was good company for my mother. And Hotsey was her name, and she took me on a trip one time on the bullet train with her good friend to see a female production, uh, a theater production in Kyoto. And... Uh, it was a wonderful time. Again, I was the only Caucasian in, in this big audience, and um, afterwards we went to find a place to eat. It was very hot outside. We walked in this very nice restaurant, very nice, elegantly, just chic dressed, chicly dressed uh, Japanese women were dressed in, in Western clothing and very, very well-dressed, and they glared at me with daggers, and then they glared at Hotsi, but they really bored into me, and the hostess did not um, offer us a table, so Hotsi and Harumi, her friend, left, and they, but they were staring at me because I was American, and they had brought me into this very nice restaurant, so we went down the street and found a place that um, you could order your food and eat while you're standing up, and then we walked back to the train station. Um, we lived close in Nara. We lived close to the park where the deer are famous for being tame, and you can go pet them and feed them. They'll eat out of your hand, and we often did this on Sunday. 
and we watch the ceremony in the fall when the deer are ceremoniously, ceremoniously, sorry, have their antlers cut. Um, but it was not unusual for people to stare in a negative way, and they stared at us to wish we were not there, that we'd go away. And yet other people were, were not that way. They were, they were very friendly. So uh, my father made sure we always stayed close together, and he was very cautious about watching us and around us when, when we went so out in public. While your father was distant, he was also protective. Yes, he was. Yes. What was it like to come back home? Because it was pre-internet. I'm certainly sure you weren't aware of all the things that were happening with American culture. No. That was about the time of Elvis and everybody came back. Oh, that's a really good statement. (laughs) Well, we didn't even have a radio in Japan, and so we came back, and uh, my cousins were... You know, early teens, they were uh, dressed in these big, these, these circular felt skirts with bells under on their petticoats underneath that would make jingle when they walked. They wore loafers and bobby socks, and they could do the bop and uh, sing the latest song. They wore fingernail polish. You know, <laughs> I wore a jumper that my mother made. <laughs> uh, let's see... Uh, lace-up shoes with socks, and so it was quite an adjustment when I got back. I did so want to talk to Mama-san um, and to Hatsi. Um, I wanted to so to share some Japanese words and songs, but no one in our family knew anyone Japanese or knew anything about Japanese people, except that they had been horrible people during the war and murdered Americans, and I, I don't want to go into that. I just... I'm just going to say that it was quite an adjustment when we came back, <laughs> as much as an adjustment when we moved to Japan. And yeah. so, um, but we moved to, uh, to Lampasas, and uh, everyone there just about wore cowboy boots and a cowboy hat, and 4-H was the biggest thing. And um, I didn't know how to play softball, and nobody knew how to talk to me because I kept standing around or sitting around saying Japanese songs and words to myself. (laughs) So I went home in tears at lunch one day because I couldn't play softball and nobody would choose me to be on their team. (laughs) My father bought a a softball glove and a softball and he worked with me in the front yard and eventually I did learn to control the ball and um, I I was chosen to play and, and began to make friends. I had had piano lessons when we lived in Japan, so it, it was a different way to use my hands. But it, it was a good learning experience. It's it's um it's okay to be different and know that everyone in the world doesn't see you the, the same way. And so it, those were those were okay learning experiences. Um, it sounds like you had a lot of resilience. Well, um, I had a very loving family. Um, and I think with with that support, you know, um, you can move forward. I have wonderful cousins still today. I have lots of cousins, and uh, my aunts and uncles um, missed us a great deal. And 
loved us a great deal. So we were very fortunate to have have a good, strong family life. How did your mom cope with all of this moving? It was very hard for my mother. Um, my mother and father um, grew up in the same place. They had never moved away from home until my, the military moved, you know, transferred my father. It was very hard for her. She really missed her family a lot. And holidays, especially Christmas, were, were very hard for her. Um, but, you know, that was our life. And, you know, those things I described were hard for me. There were things that were harder for her. And so, in a way, you know, everybody gave in order <laughs> for my father to do his job, you know. Um, after you were uh, stationed in Germany, mm-hmm. which we, I'm thinking must have looked much more devastating than Japan, we we saw uh, a great deal more. Sorry, we saw a great deal more devastation in in uh, Germany in Munich than we did in Japan. Uh, sorry about that. Someone was trying to get us. I'll just have to let it ring. On the uh, way into Munich, we drove through the outskirts of the city. And, you know, I, I was 13 at the time. And, of course, you read about, you know, we all have read about World War II in our history books. Well, that's all I knew, what I had read in the history book. But here it was. I was right in our faces. The shells of buildings where people had lived and worked and um, nothing left but just, the shell, I and mean, it was pockmarked with bullets, and it was all cleaned up in huge, huge mountains outside the enormous mountains of rubble from the war. Um, but all of those buildings on the way in, old, old buildings. And then um, we uh, went to my father and mother, liked to, wanted us to see as much of the world as possible. And uh, we'd like to take us for a ride every every weekend, go someplace to see the, the Bavaria. Well, one winter, it was uh, sort of after Christmas, they drove us to Nuremberg where the war trials were held. And uh, my father stopped outside this enormous stadium that Hitler had built. And he just stopped there, just was speechless. It was so enormous. I wondered what he was thinking about. You know, I just wondered what was going through his mind. But we drove on, and uh, we were the only car on the streets that morning. It was a Sunday. Uh, there were there were a few groups of people walking, and they made great effort to ignore us, even though the streets were very narrow, and they had to move out of the way. I'm sorry. And you have. Okay, we'll be right back after the okay, commercial. Girl. Okay. You're listening to Voice America Health and Wellness. 
Westbridge Community Services. Westbridge is a nonprofit organization dedicated to supporting the recovery of families and individuals who experience co-occurring mental illness and substance use disorders. Westbridge provides integrated dual diagnosis treatment for adult men and women using evidence-based practices. Visit our site today at westbridge.org and discover that doing what works in helping individuals and families gain recovery from dual disorders is important to the staff at Westbridge Community Services. Westbridge utilizes current evidence-based practices, consensus practices, and old-fashioned common sense to provide treatment to individuals and families that experience co-occurring mental illness and substance use disorders. That's westbridge.org, family-centered recovery for co-occurring mental illness and substance abuse disorders. The Mayan calendar tells us that we will be entering into a 260-day opportunity for us to engage in conscious co-creation with great spirit. How will we prepare ourselves for this exciting and unprecedented time in Earth's history? Peter Tung has dedicated over 20 years of his life's work to exploring that which is beyond understanding. Peter will help increase your awareness and education on this enlightening transformation in consciousness. Awakening to Conscious Co-Creation airs live Wednesdays at noon Pacific Time, 3 p.m. Eastern Time on 7th Wave Network. Your life, your health, your network. This is Voice America Health & Wellness. You're listening to One Hour at a Time with host Mary Woods. If you have a question for Mary or her guests, call now. The listener lines are open. The toll-free number is 1-866-472-5792. That number again is 1-866-472-5792. Now, let's get back to Mary and One Hour at a Time. Welcome back, everyone, to One Hour at a Time. This is Mary Woods, and our guest today is Mary Lou Darst. And um, we're this today's show. We're talking about military families and what they experience and uh, the price they all pay, so that we can enjoy the freedoms that we have. And Mary Lou grew up um, in the 50s and 60s, and her dad served in both World War II and Korea. And before we went to break, Mary Lou, you were sharing with us what it was like to um, live in Germany, um, and this would have been in the late 50s, early 60s. Late 50s, we we came back yeah. in December of 59, so it was 57 to 15, March of 57 to December of 59. Um, well, you know, my great-grandparents came from Darmstadt, and so we we were not so different from the German people. We didn't speak German, and I didn't know that I had, my family had come from Darmstadt until we came back from Germany. But um, we had wonderful friends in Munich, who were German and um, in, would take us places and um, invite us to their house for dinner. My parents would respond, have them. Um, they were married in, in the Lutheran Church, and we were invited to their wedding, which was wonderful. Um, they, were, they were like grandparents to us while we were in Munich. And... Um, Let's see, what else can I say? I studied German at school, and again, my parents depended on me to translate whenever we went someplace. Um, It it was just not so different as being in Japan, but we lived in an American community in Kellacher Forest, and um, so we weren't on the German economy, but we did have a lot of contact um, with the German people who were very kind to us, very accepting and this was 12 years after the war, mm-hmm. um, but they were very kind to us always, very accepting of us. 
So after Germany, you came home, and uh, was it as a hard transition to come home after Germany? Is it? Oh my goodness! <laughs> we had lived in the uh, cultural center of Bavaria. Munich is 800 years old, and my father was transferred to Fort Leonard Wood in 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 Missouri, near Rolla, Missouri, just a huge, huge base. But he wanted uh, to live in St. James, where he had a younger brother. And so we lived in a very, very small town. It was very, very small. And again, it was kind of like being in Lantasis. It was kind of agricultural. A lot of people wore cowboy boots and hats. But it, it, because my father's brother lived there, that helped the transition a little. But um, it, it was quite different, the, the culture that we had lived in and um, the traveling we had done in Europe, gone to the Mediterranean and and uh, traveled in just about every country of of Europe. Um, there was no one to talk to <laughs> who had had similar experiences, so that was something different. Yeah. Um, you know, I think about the number of deployments that current military families uh, experience with the with the mom or dad being deployed for four or five, six times, and mm-hmm. and the families don't get to go with them. So, you know, do you think that that experience is different than what you experienced? Oh, I would definitely say that's very different. Uh, There's not as much adjusting, uh, physical adjusting, and packing up and saying goodbye was so difficult. It was so difficult. Every place we lived was home, and then you're always torn away again. Um, That that's. Living without your parent is another experience entirely, and I, you know, never, never having to being able to join them is is very difficult. But I can't address that. It's a different story than the one I lived. Um, yeah. It's not easy at all to see your parent go. It's not easy. Your dad was gone once, right? When he was in Korea. Um. Well, yes, but he was always transferred. First, he was gone for a while. He was gone for over a year when he left for Korea and Nara. And in uh, other times, he uh, he was traveled a lot with his job, or he could be. And like I said, we were not to ask, and we we didn't ever know what he was doing when he was gone. But he was away a lot, and uh, then he would then he would come back. So, and. Um, then I, when we went to Germany, he left in October, and we went in March. So that wasn't such a long time. But um, you had asked me a question, and let me see if I can. What is how how to survive in the military? I think that you know some of some of parts of my life were were difficult because of the being a military dependent and having to move a lot. But in the end, the discipline and the exposure to so many different cultures has helped me uh, have a smoother road in of life than uh, those who perhaps have not had the exposure to other cultures and had to move. You, you have to be uh, malleable. You have to be able to change a lot be willing to change and be open to change. And so all of those moves and living in so many different cultures and 
meeting so many different people have helped me to see life through a different pair of eyes. I don't know if that answers your question, dear. Well, I think, and it's certainly the, um, I think for, for people who can adjust, I think that's a great, um, that's a great asset to, to moving all around, you know. Um, and I think that you talked about the support of your, of your extended family and how important that was to your adjusting. Right. And I right. think what we, we hear now is that, you know, so many families become isolated. Right. And, and I think that um, as Americans, we all need to kind of reach out to some of these families who are in oh, our communities yes. because oh, yes. you know, a, lot of, a lot of the people being deployed are people in the reserves, so they're not on the military base. They're our right. neighbors. And right. how can we reach out to them, to the families that are left while their um, mom or dad are being deployed for 8, 9, 10, 12 months? Right. It's, it's really, really hard, especially if you're... You're not in the military, like you say, if you're in the reserves. Um, I think that, you know, with, regu- with regularity, if you, you know, could set up a, taking somebody out for coffee on a regular basis or, you know, taking the kids to next door to watch TV with you or something, just little things. It doesn't have to be big things. Just little things, you know, coming over for dinner, um, those kinds of things. It's really important not to be isolated. It uh, causes a lot of, lot of, um, lot of just problems. <laughs> and um, go ahead. Well, I was just wondering. You know, when we think about um, daughters and their dads and how um, special that relationship can be, um, with your dad being so distant and reserved, uh, what effect did that have for you? Well, um, I loved my father, but I was always afraid of him, and uh, I uh, was afraid of men. Uh, <laughs> I just, you know, I'm I'm a, an open can talk. To, I learn to talk to people, but uh, but I'm really a very shy person. I'm happy to just stay home and not. <laughs> I'm telling you my whole life story today. <laughs> I'm really uh, really. I uh, was happy just to stay home, stay inside, and, you know, <laughs> not have to relate to people I didn't know, and still am. Uh, and so uh, I guess I'm giving you a double-edged sword. But um, it's Im- it's important to be able to, I can keep using the word adjust, but to see the other side of of the picture and be able to understand why things are the you know the way they are and try to try to cope with it for a little while and then it gets better. It's not that way um, forever. Early on in the book, you talked in a few instances where your father just basically ignored you or just treated you like you weren't there. And how did you how did you adjust to that? Well. That's the way it was. I didn't know any different. And um, so, I, you know, I would maybe not have liked it to be another way, but that's the way it was, and, and it wasn't going to change. Um, the other thing was that um, we had a lot of homework in school. We had, um, when I lived in, we lived in Munich, I had homework until midnight at least 
every night, and I never finished it. And um, I didn't really have time to be too worried about whether my father was <laughs> you know, I had to bring home good grades. That's what I had to worry about. I was expected to be um, make good grades. And um, so I was concerned with um, wading through all that, that work I had to do. So um, it wasn't. I wasn't just sitting around thinking, "Well, he's not paying attention to me. He's not looking." There was never time for that. There was never any of that. I had uh, tons of homework, and uh, I was active in my school in other ways too. So I guess um, I don't know if that answers your question or not. <laughs> uh, well, I think it speaks then again to the resilience that the children have, and right. Structure and support is coping with things you don't understand. Right, right. You can. I guess I threw myself into my schoolwork and the uh, extracurricular activities. So maybe, maybe that's the answer I should have said, should have given rather. Um, so, did you and your father? Um, how did your relationship evolve after he retired from the? That's a, that's a very good question, Mary. Um, well, I married. I went to college, but I left and married, and uh, I had two children who I loved dearly, and that just seemed to change a lot. He had missed so being with my brother and me when you know we were little. He was away, and he absolutely loved and adored those children, and uh, they would go and spend the weekend with with my parents and. Uh, they just seemed to relive those years that they missed that time they spent together. And he did mellow. He did mellow a lot. But he was always a soldier. Always a soldier. Um, anyway. <laughs> so um, it got better, or it changed with your own children. He, yes. His role as a grandfather, it sounds like he was softer than as a father. Yes, yes, he he just loved and filled a, filled a huge void in his life. And, and, and my mother's, too. They could share those years together, and it was just a great joy to see them. So, anyway, my parents died very young. Uh, my father was 58 when he died, and my mother was 62. So, <laughs> it didn't last and We have enough. one final commercial, and then oh. we'll be back to finish our um, discussion about military families with Mary Lou. We'll be right back. Opinions, options, answers. You're listening to Voice America Health & Wellness. Westbridge Community Services. Westbridge is a nonprofit organization dedicated to supporting the recovery of families and individuals who experience co-occurring mental illness and substance use disorders. Westbridge provides integrated dual diagnosis treatment for adult men and women using evidence-based practices. Visit our site today at westbridge.org and discover that doing what works in helping individuals and families gain recovery from dual disorders is important to the staff at Westbridge Community Services. Westbridge utilizes current evidence-based practices, consensus practices, and old-fashioned common sense to provide treatment to individuals and families that experience co-occurring mental illness and substance use disorders. That's westbridge.org, family-centered recovery for co-occurring mental illness and substance abuse disorders. 
your life, your health, your network. You're listening to Voice America Health and Wellness. You're listening to One Hour at a Time with host Mary Woods. If you have a question for Mary or her guests, call now. The listener lines are open. The toll-free number is 1-866-472-5792. That number again is 1-866-472-5792. Now, let's get back to Mary and One Hour at a Time. Welcome back to One Hour at a Time. This is Mary Woods, and today we're talking about military families um, with Mary Lou Darst, who's written a book called War Ready in My Father's Shadows. And um, Mary Lou is sharing with us her experience with her dad, who served in, during World War II and in Korea. And um, and while it was a different time, I think there's some parallels to what um, what military families experience today, especially uh, the transition um, home for, uh, you know, like you had said, Mary Lou, that you were kind of all strangers living under the same house. So that, you know, if mom and dad are away for a year and life goes on at home and you come home and, you know, you left a, a young child and now you come home and they're in, you know, puberty, you know, it right. like, it's, it's like so different. And I it's think pretty, that that's yeah. an adjustment that all military families go right. through. And, and I think there's so much that most of us just take for granted. That's and, true. Um, That's true. And, and I think that you're talking about some wonderful, resilient qualities that that you had in terms of being able to have a support system with your own extended family. Um, your mother, who was, uh, from what I write, read, it was very social, and yes. so she kind of paved the way in a lot yes. of areas yes. for you. Yes, she did. And, and just being able to travel and see the world, I'm sure, was also very uh, broadening as well, so oh. that your worldview yes. uh, tended to be much different than your um, peers. Yes, that's very, very true. Um, we were very, very fortunate to to have the travel experience, and uh, although we missed our families and... Um, oh, I was going to cry. I always cry when I talk about this. I'm so sorry. Um, anyway... We did miss our families a lot, and uh, saying goodbye was such a such a hard thing, even to people we loved. And when we left, um, like Mama San and Hatsi and Mister and Mrs. Grigenberg, it was uh, like leaving our own family. So, uh, anyway, um, but it it is it has helped me to see the world through a different pair of eyes, and I think that is that's been healthy. That's been healthy. Yeah. You know, I'm listening to your your emotion and talking about having to leave and, and leaving people behind and, and moving on. I think that's yeah, I think that's a universal that goes across every generation. Um, uh-huh. There's a show on one of the cable com- uh, stations called Coming Home, uh-huh. and it profiles people who are coming back from deployment and they surprise their family. Oh. And invariably, these young children, you know even teenagers, when they interview them before they know their dad or mom is coming home and, and they talk about their, their parent and they're in tears saying that they miss them, they love them, and they want to see them again. And then when they come home, these kids won't let go of their, their mother or father. I mean, right. they just hang on right. to them for dear life, right. you know, and it's like, and they're home, but then they got to say goodbye again. And right. I just can't imagine what that's like to just, you know, 
to know that your mom or dad is going to walk out the door and you may never see them again. again. You know, that's right. It is is very hard for me to say goodbye to people that I love, to watch them leave, to go away. I mean, I keep thinking, I've got to grow up. I have to stop doing this. But but it's just like repeating that picture over and over again. Will I ever see them again? And never, I think of all the people you meet and I've never seen them again. It was just so, (coughs) so anyway. It makes you a better person in life, too. Well, it can. I'm sure it can, or I'm, I'm sure, and for some people, it really messes them up. <laughs> you know, I think I think it could go either way. I think, uh, Mary Lou, you were very fortunate. <laughs> you know, you kind of came out of this with very few scars. Well, I, I'm afraid I was very lucky. I had had a good yeah. life. I was fortunate. But, so if people want to read your book or get your book, how would they go about getting it? Well, it's available at iUniverse.com, and um, you you can order it online at iUniverse.com or Amazon.com or Barnes and Noble. Either and any. if people want to contact you, do you have a website or? I do have a website, and it's uh, may I give it to you? Sure. It's two thousand twenty dot my author site. Dot com. That's a lot. I better, may I say it again? Yes, you better. <laughs> okay, it's two thousand three zeros twenty dot my dot com. All one word. My dot com. It's all one word, and uh, that would be an easy way to, to contact me. So, Mary, thank you so much for this opportunity. It's been wonderful to talk with you. I appreciate it so much. Oh, you're welcome. I think that um, you know being able to sh- to provide hope for for military families is really important, and I do too. to really highlight <laughs> the good things that come from um, belonging nowhere and living everywhere. Um, I guess being a citizen of the universe is is really important, and and I think it's also very validating for families when or for for children, no matter how old they are. When they hear your emotion about saying goodbye, how that's a lifelong, um, I don't want to say wound, but it's a lifelong sensitivity that that you have that um, folks who don't have to say those goodbyes don't really understand. That's that's kind of you to say that. <laughs> so kind. You know, it's true. <laughs> well, I think I think it's true. I don't think um, you know, uh, and maybe unless you're you're. Um, your, your mom or dad is a police officer or a fireman. I don't know of anybody else who who kind of worries about their mom or dad when they go out the door. You know, it's like, okay, they're going to be home for supper. Or, right. You know, there, there's right. that constancy of, well, they're going to be here tomorrow and the next right. day. And, Those you know, one day is pretty much like the other. Um, it's different for military families. That's, those are very true statements, too. <laughs> very true mm-hmm. statements. Thank you. Anyway. Um, we have a couple minutes left, and I just okay. wondered, is there um, one thing that you would say to to uh, people today, young young people today, whose folks are being deployed, if they happen to listen to this, or, or uh, spouses? Well, it, it doesn't last forever. Um, it, it's very painful at the time, but it doesn't last forever. And um, you have to find one good thing in every day, find one good thing 
in every day un- until you're reunited. And um, think positive thoughts. Think positive thoughts all the time. But find one good thing in every day. That's the best way to do it. And to understand it doesn't last forever. <laughs> yes. That's Even very important. The, like in the middle of it, you think it's going to. Um, but, but it doesn't last forever. It, it may seem like it is at the beginning, but it, it doesn't last forever. So have, have heart. <laughs> anyway, and you need to have friends. It's really, really important to have a friend. Really important. Well, and I think the other thing that um, we've talked about is that if mom and dad come back from a deployment and they're acting different, mm. not because of you, it's because of what they have experienced. That's and so that um, it's not because you've changed or you're disappointed in who you are. It's because of what they've experienced while they were gone. Yeah. And that's really important, you know. That's very, very true. And I'm hoping that... Um, that the, that the men and women who come back have some time to decompress and kind of talk about what they've experienced before they, they get to their doorstep. I don't, I don't know if that's a reality or not. I hope it is, but um, you need a lot of understanding. We don't, know, we don't know what it's like for them, and they may not be able to talk about it. My father never talked about the war, even never talked about what he did. And um, my brother volunteered to go to Vietnam, and he couldn't talk about it, couldn't talk to my brother about war or anything. And so we hope that for men and women who have given so much and come back, uh, that uh, we can extend um, a great deal of understanding to help them. And- yeah, and respect and gratitude for all that they've done to yes. keep us free. Yes. So thank you, Mary Lou. It has been a great hour, and thank you for your time today. Uh, Mary Lou's book is War Ready and My Father's Shadows, and um, the author is Mary Lou Darst, D-A-R-S-T. Have a great week, everybody. Thank you, Mary. Bye-bye. Thank you. Bye-bye. Bye now. Appreciate you joining us today for one hour at a time. Successful recovery from a substance abuse problem or mental illness depends on education and support of loved ones. Thank you for being that support system. Be sure to tune in next week for another hour of education and compassion. One hour at a time. We'll see you next week.